Good morning, all you stay-at-home cooks. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And for years, of course, we got these gorgeous cookbooks um, that looked great on the coffee table. But I've noticed that more and more, of course, as we endure the dark days of COVID-19 and are cooking at home, and we're getting practical cookbooks, and we're going to bring you three of them that you're going to probably break open and, and start cooking from right away. Now, this, this first one. Yeah, who's up first? Is, he's... He's the light, Sam Zion, the the cooking guy. This 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 is the book you should have written. This is my this is my kind of book. It's called um, Cooking with uh, Recipes with Intentional Leftovers. We're talking to Sam Zion. It's called Sam the Cooking Guy, and that's the name of his book. Uh, recipes with intentional leftovers. Well, I'm glad to meet you, Sam, the cooking guy. <laughs> uh, thank you, Anne. How are you? I'm I'm good. Um, you are kind of spectacular. You have um, you, you are a YouTube sensation. Uh, you have three restaurants in San Diego. Uh, you're a regular on the Today Show. You've won 15 Emmys. That, I'd say, is a pretty successful track record. You know, I look, I, I cannot complain, but the, the fun part for me is all of this happened, and not to go into it, but all of this happened because I was miserable at what I was doing in life and thought one day, you know, life is too short, as my mother would tell me. Um, <laughs> you need to do something that you wake up and you're happy about. And I made yeah, a change, man. and when I made that change, uh, it made all the difference. It really did. Now, when you when you when you make that change, you also speak up, right, Sam? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, of course, Peter. I speak up absolutely. Hint, hint, hint. Right. hint, hint. You know what? Sorry. What what I I loved about this and caught my attention right away is, if anybody would ask me two questions, one is, what's your favorite food? And I would reply, leftovers. And the other one is, what do you eat for breakfast? And what I would reply is, leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're absolutely a, a perfect person uh, for this book. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you this. You know, I came to cooking on television in the beginning, not because I was Hello? a chef. Hello? Uh-oh. What's wrong, Robert? Uh, no, I've got no sound. You got me there? Do you have sound? I, I, don't, I can't hear Sam. I can hear you guys fine. Oh, okay. All right. Some, you got me? Well, why do you not have sound? I do now. I lost, you, I lost your sound a little bit for oh, a few okay. minutes. Okay. Should I go on? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. So, so, uh, so cooking for me was... Uh, it uh, didn't happen because I was a chef. It happened because I just had an idea about a, a TV show that I thought I could figure out. So the point is, is in the beginning, uh, you know, I was a very basic cook. The concept of the TV show was if I could do something easy, again. so so could the audience. Uh-oh. Am I lost again? I don't know. It must be your hear... phone, rather, because I'm fine. Well, you, I'm, I, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm right here. Yeah, I, for some reason you're fading out on my 
upset. I don't know why. And, and I'm speaking up, Peter, too. Yeah, there you no, go. Good night. Well, keep, keep, keep going. That's fine. Okay. So, uh, so because I wasn't a, a, a real chef, uh, I didn't think about, uh, sadly, I didn't think about food waste. I would make something, we'd eat it, and then I'd get tired of it, and then uh, I'd probably throw it out or give it away. But as I got to be better in the kitchen, as my skills grew, I started to say to myself, look, it's crazy to make something and then eat it the same way a couple of times and get bored of it and throw it away. So I started uh, thinking, what else could I do with that particular item? A little bit of leftover steak, a few stray meatballs, an extra slice of meatloaf or, you know, something. And that's when the thinking started. And my thinking about using food, main things that I've made as leftovers, really kicked into high gear in the past uh, three or four years. And then when I was approached by um, uh, my publisher, see if I'd be interested in writing a book, and I said, yes. He goes, any idea what the book would be about? I said, uh, actually, I have in my computer the outline of pretty much an entire book. So... Away we went. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of how how to describe this book, which is not your first, that's for sure. No. But, I mean, it, let's talk about the design of this. Sure. I mean, it's so, a stunner. Well, thank you. So um, a guy named Lucas Barbieri took the pictures, and he did a beautiful job. Uh, I did all my own food styling. I had oh, one conversation. I had one conversation with a food stylist, uh, as we got close to getting ready to shoot the book, and I just got a vibe from her. You know, sometimes you just get a feeling in your stomach. And the feeling I got in my stomach was what was this woman didn't understand or wouldn't have been able to have understood what my vision was. And if you notice, the pictures in the books don't have placemats and matching napkins and knives and forks and stuff like that. Right. Because um, that's just not me. I mean, of course but, I use yeah, The funny thing is they really are kind of, they're, um, they're not posed. They're very no. natural, but they're yeah. stunning. I mean, I'm looking at Thank your you. pickled red onion <laughs> photo. Yeah. It's compelling. Yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you. So yeah. the concept of the book is simple. We've taken essentially 19 master recipes, and those are things like how to cook a steak, perfectly and, and, and nail it every time, how to roast a chicken beautifully, how to make, um, um, a, you know, a meatloaf, how to grill a whole bunch of vegetables, um, how to eat even silly things like hard, how to hard-boil eggs or make perfect steamed rice. So once you know how to make those things, then each of those chapters has four or five or six other recipes of what you can do with those things instead of eating them as intended. You know, the hard-boiled eggs can become this amazing uh, sort of everything bagel avocado toast or chorizo scotch eggs, uh, you know, or, or curried egg salad, one of my favorite things on the planet. You know, we roast the chicken, but then we show how to make a buffalo chicken pizza or a Thai chicken uh, curry dish or, you know, uh, uh, Taquitos. It's that kind of, of thinking. And I think 
if you take away anything from the book, it's that you should be looking at what you make in a different light. How else can I utilize that simple slice of meatloaf? Like meatloaf is great, and I always make a big one because we love it. One of my favorite things is a, in fact, on one of my restaurant menus is a, a meatloaf, toasted meatloaf sandwich, which is, I think, one of the great joys, one of the great joys in life. And maybe that's obvious for people or, or maybe not. But then, you know, it occurred to me one day, I had extra, a couple slices of meatloaf in my, my refrigerator, and I was thinking about what I could make. I had some uh, pasta sauce that I had made. And I'm thinking, and I'm looking at the meatloaf, and I'm thinking, you know what? I could make a meat uh, pasta sauce starting from scratch, or I could take this meatloaf and crumble it up. It's already <laughs> seasoned. It's already flavored. And then just add this other uh, tomato-based sauce, and I could have a delicious meat-based pasta sauce in about three minutes instead of about an hour. It's thinking like that that I'm trying to encourage. Well, you know, the, I thought one of the most impressive things, because I've been there with, I mean, just so many days in a row you could eat brisket. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. <laughs> that one was, yeah. I was very impressed with what you did with that. Run us through what you did with your uh, brisket. You see, you made well, so your, your Jewish-style brisket. Right, and I, and I say Jewish-style brisket, but not just because I'm Jewish and I'm, you know, uh, voting for my Oh, it's team, a classic. Yeah, but 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 because if uh, you know, when you say brisket, I think you could ask a hundred people and uh, what kind of you know do you like brisket? And what kind do you make? And there's the there's like the the smoked version, the Texas style version, or there's the oven braised, which I call a Jewish version. So we make the brisket, and of course, it's absolutely amazingly delicious by itself. But then sure. we make. Um, what I say is I think maybe the world's best brisket grilled cheese. There's just something about the grilled cheese when you get this totally unctuous brisket inside of it, and there's onions and stuff, but we also turn it into uh, super delicious brisket empanadas. And yeah, yes, I like of course that. You could, make, you, you could make your own, you know, pie dough, but really I don't think it's a terrible uh, bad way to pick up a, a, you know, a pie crust already made in the store. And then you're just adding a couple things and some cheese. And now you've got something very different. And then the other thing we do is we make brisket fries. So you, you make fries and you shred the brisket. And then there's this super delicious, very easy cheese sauce that goes over top of the whole thing. Honestly, I think one of my favorite pictures in the book. I think Lucas captured the, that, that beautifully. Is this the, the uh, I called it the ultimate food porn here, the world's yeah. best grilled cheese <laughs> yeah. sandwich? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, it it looks yeah. so wonderful. Thank you. Well, it was a really it was a really fun book for me to write. I, so it's my fourth cookbook and um I will say book number 2 for some reason was difficult for me. And I don't know why, but it was a little difficult. It's a book on sort of kitchen shortcut. Um the mm -hmm. third book was grilling and then this one came along and um this was a dream. It was super easy. I had a lot of it already mapped out before I even started, which, which maybe helped, but I was so excited about it. And I've, I've said many times now, um, it's not just my favorite book to date, 
But honestly, I think my most useful book. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly useful. <laughs> I love this Finnish salmon soup, too, by the way. There are yeah. so many oh that you could just pick these recipes out. And when, yeah, tell yeah. me how people use these. I mean, going through this, I find these recipes that I love. Do I then go yeah. back to the original, um, the the first batch created in order to get to the leftovers? How do I use this? Well, look, I mean, I think a lot of people have uh, have said, you know, the 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 chapter on the roast chicken. I think that's one of those things everybody should know how to make. Yeah, you know, everybody says so... that. And, and, you know, I, I think we use Thomas Colors, don't we, Robert? What's that, love? The roast chicken. Which, which one do we use? Well, we use beer. We, we, use, we, we make beer can chicken. Oh, beer can yeah. chicken. When, yeah, so when, here's the, here's we're the going to have trouble with what, that. The chicken I ordered, I thought it was going to be four to five pounds. Is we, almost we, seven. we actually have a... <laughs> Sam, we actually we actually have a, a, a beer can chicken machine. Oh, so, so a you machine. don't you don't you don't actually you don't actually use a beer can. It's actually yeah. styled out of metal, and with a with a sort of a prong on it that goes up inside the bird, ah. and, a, and a and a and a base where you where you put the beer, and the and the beer it. It just, evaporates it helps, and goes up through the, the chicken. chicken. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well, so I've but, had but people it, tell me, um, you know, the book has only been out since uh, officially since Tuesday. So, well, um, well see, I wanted to ask you that. What kind of reactions yeah. are you getting? Well, I'm getting uh, very positive reactions. People uh, are loving it. They love the they love the photography. They love the the nature of the book being it's, left it's over. It's gorgeous. It's wonderful. But what they also like is. And people that know me that are fans of our YouTube channel or have followed me over the years, the comment that I get is the book reads exactly like you talk. Yeah. <laughs> they like the humor in it. They like the casual sound. And they tell me, uh, friends and fans alike tell me that as they read it, they're hearing my voice uh, essentially read it to them. Well, I mean, I could sense you. I've never met you, of course, until yeah. now. And I, mean, yeah. I, I got your personality right away oh, from the you. book. Thank you, thank you. It's my wife would say, them. my wife would say, if you like me, uh, you know, in the book, <laughs> you'll like me in person because I'm the same guy. Oh, good. Well, that's a good thing yeah. to know. Here's, here's, yeah, a, yeah. here's an ob- observation for you. Sam, and you may, right. maybe, I didn't read the book, so it might be in there, or it might not be, but uh, we, we like tongue. We like beef tongue, Yeah. But, uh, but, but, but it's such a lot of work. I always well, do two at a time. Yeah. And then, well, we, then, we, eat per, so, then we eat them for about a week, but, but the punchline is coming yet. We were looking through the freezer one, one day, looking for inspiration as to what to have for dinner, yeah. and we, we saw this round plastic container that said beef tongue on it yeah so so we thought it there was no meat in there it was, all <laughs> it was just a liquid you didn't you didn't read the whole label it said a beef tongue liquid <laughs> so, no, so, but, there's a, but, so there's a piece of advice that i'm sure you must have in your book somewhere which is called well, he, please, please write the, on there what it is that you have in <laughs> right the container. make sure you do. 
My bigger problem, uh, Peter, isn't that I don't write the label properly. It's that I don't write a label at all at times. And then I, I, I'm 100% certain of what I'm putting in a container into my freezer. And at the moment, there's never any question that I'll have trouble remembering what it is. But two months later, when I open it up, I have to spend a few minutes trying to figure out what the heck I've actually put in this deli container. But you know what? You forgot something. Well, you know, I used to make a list and put it on yeah. the refrigerator door. Uh, oh, that's and, a good idea. And then, and, yeah, but then, and cross off what I take out. But I just yeah. can't be that organized anymore, so I don't do yeah. it anymore. So. No, organization is important. But, Peter, you, you said something that is very important. Uh, somebody said to me when this book first started uh, coming out, I started talking about it in uh, other interviews. Somebody said to me, you know, there's a chapter on uh, what to do with leftover steak. And somebody said, I never have leftover steak. We always right. eat it. And I said, but listen, here's the point. If you're going to cook a steak or a piece of chicken, it's just as easy to cook two steaks or two pieces of chicken or two pieces of salmon. Again, yeah. Have it the way you intend tonight, but now you've got extra to do something with tomorrow. When I make salmon, and my wife and I eat a lot of salmon, it's a source of good fat. It's low in calories. It's great protein. Uh, we'll have salmon tonight on a plate looking like a piece of salmon. But tomorrow it becomes this most amazing salmon salad. Same thing with, the, with extra chicken or steak. So, yes, you might cook a steak and then there's nothing left for leftovers. But I'm encouraging people, cook once, but cook once more, but eat multiple times with that same food. Just now, not how the long, same way. They, how long does one article take? I mean, I'm a little concerned about continuing to keep something hanging around in the refrigerator. I've been complaining about the chicken broth to Peter because yeah. he opens one of those boxes and we don't make it ourselves. And, um, and, and it stays in there for a month or two. And I said, it's no good. You can't do that. You know, I start to worry about things like that too after maybe a week or so. But that's when I find myself taking that chicken broth and freezing it. Because well, I was going to ask you to that. Life. It comes back to life so beautifully you would never know. And then, of yeah. course, you can do that thing where you freeze it in ice cube trays. And then once yeah. they're frozen, pop them out, put them in a Ziploc bag. And now when you need a little boost of flavor or even a cup or so, you just grab a handful of those ice cubes, uh, put them in a pot, and on a very low simmer, they're back to life in, you know, five minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think probably the freezer is one of my most important kitchen um, appliances. Tell you Isn't it? Truth. You know, it's what's funny is frozen food to people uh, is okay if it's like a pizza or, you know, enchiladas that come in a package from the, the supermarket. But things like frozen steaks uh, and other proteins – seem to have a negative connotation for a lot of people. And that's just flawed thinking. I have well, you know, the same is true, of course, of, of um, uh, frozen, um, well, I mean, like vegetables, I mean, or fish. Yeah. How about fish? Because 
usually they froze the fish right on the boat, and it's much better um, and, and safer than than what we do in, in buying. No, exactly. Fresh, I always and I, I, I always for have, example. Right. I always have a bag of uh, two different sizes of frozen shrimp in my freezer because yes, I, I know in, co- in cold water they'll come back to life in about 15 minutes. And they're the quickest, one of the healthiest meals you could ever make. You know, like a little chowder, corn chowder, any kind of a broth in a pot that you put, a, you know, a handful of defrosted shrimp in. In five minutes, they're cooked, they're perfect, they're tender, and now you just amped up the flavor of whatever it is that was simmering away in the first place. Well, well I funny, what, guess, guess what we had for dinner last night? We had shrimp. Uh, yes. What kind? Tell me. Uh, they, it, well, Whole, Whole Foods calls them easy peel. Yeah. Right. It's right. in the shell. I like in the shell shrimp. Yeah. I like. So I like. I find that. I find they both have their their purpose. Yes. Uh, the shelled ones and the and the 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 ones that are still in the shell. Yeah. I mean, I used to have the shelled ones. Um, available in case we got people stopping by unexpectedly right. for cocktails or something. Well, I mean, we, right. we we don't do that much. Well, nobody stops by at this point. <laughs> right. Nobody's stopping by anywhere right now. <laughs> true. 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 We, we don't shame. know if it's we don't know if it's us uh, being fussy or them. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm glad you you're you're. A partial to meatloaf. Um, I had a oh. slew of people. Um, I guess my um, my daughter-in-law's grandmother died, and and they all were from Philadelphia, and they came into town, and I knew nothing about their taste, nothing about half of these people. I didn't even know, and there were bunches of them, um, and uh, they just came because of the funeral and and the little kids. And so I had people I didn't know, and I also had little kids, and I had to prepare a meal for all of these people, and I made meatloaf. I made Good actually two large meatloafs, and it was like people had not had meatloaf <laughs> in their life at all. They thought it was so wonderful. I don't think people cook well, enough you know, meatloaf. Here's the thing. Meatloaf, uh, but honestly, is not that sexy sounding. And often not that sexy looking. I will say, though, that I think that my meatloaf uh, in the book, and we, and we retook the picture because I wanted to make it look a little bit better. And I made one small change by adding a bunch of parsley to it. And if you looked at it, let me just see. If, I don't know if you have it in front of you. Hold on. I have it right in it's front on, of you. Oh, I put spinach in it. Sorry. It's on page 61. I put spinach into it. Uh, just frozen spinach, you know, thawed, squeezed dry. But it changes the look of the meatloaf from just that sort of gray-looking mass to now it's got some color and some texture. But I think people hate meatloaf often, like many things, because they grew up with a very a bad version of it. You know, uh, people's yeah. mothers don't necessarily make a great meatloaf. And they have a meatloaf you, in the school cafeterias and things like that, right. but who knows right. so what's in them. If you grow up with a lousy meatloaf, you're not going to enjoy it as an adult until you have a good one. 
Well, you know, when, when I'm being indulgent, I make a Sicilian meatloaf, which layers, um, what do we have in it? We have um, beef, pork, um, a Genoa salami, ricotta, oh. hard-boiled eggs, <laughs> tomato sauce, and bacon. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a, now, that's a meatloaf. That, that's a meatloaf. Right? That, that's the meatloaf I could get behind. I mean, I can get, I like any meatloaf. I really mm-hmm. do. And you but like I meatballs, like too. I love meatballs. And they're one of the most useful things ever. You should make meatballs and just keep a bunch of those in your freezer as well, because they will find a home in all kinds of things. They really You know, I, somebody wrote a book, I don't remember who, we interviewed them, um, about global meatballs. Every culture has a meatball. Don't they? They have some version of it. It's exactly yeah. true. Funny, huh? And who doesn't like a good meatball? <laughs> I guess Peter makes a good meatball. I make good. Well, I stole the, I stole the recipe from Lobel's in Manhattan. Yeah. Oh, Lobel. <laughs> I, well, I think the key to a good meatball is the ricotta cheese. I really do. Well, I love it's ricotta. It's an important, important compor- component. Yeah. See, I've been... My hairdresser has been making his own uh, ricotta, and he highly recommends it. I just haven't got around. Yeah. It's not very difficult, actually. No, it's, uh, uh, I think, it's not, I think, nothing, nothing I've tried yet, but, but will one day. My, my <laughs> secret ingredient, if you can call it that, I guess, is, uh, f- first of all, using a little spice like Chinese five spice. Yeah. But but the the thing the, the variable that seems to generate the best end result is to use panko breadcrumbs. I, the only breadcrumbs I keep in my home, Peter, are panko. Yeah. Right. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. I just think the other ones are fine, but I don't want them pre-seasoned. I want to be in charge of my own seasoning. Uh, right. I don't want to leave it up to you know some store brand version, and. Um, and they're just, they're crispier, they're lighter, they're fantastic. There's nothing I make with breadcrumbs that doesn't have them as panko. Right, right. right. Well, I think that's good. Yeah, um, yep. it's, a, it's a whole breadcrumbs, a whole category. There are breadcrumbs and then there are your homemade breadcrumbs that are really special, actually. Yeah, But I, I always end up putting them in the freezer and forgetting they're yeah. there until they're all freezer burned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the key. Uh, the key is use well, uh, your freezer, but know what's in there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sam Zion, Sam the Cooking Guy, it's certainly a pleasure. This book, um, and and it's an inspiration. And we certainly have to start not throwing things out and nope. wasting food. I mean, we're all big into stopping this waste, and so Look, your book this- is going to help that. Well, thank you, Anne. Look, in this time of this pandemic, we're all cooking so much more, so we really should be thinking about what we're doing with the food we have. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, we have um, 412 Food Rescue um, going here. It's, you know, they're all over all the different uh, states, and actually, this one's actually across cultures, I mean, countries. Yeah. but, uh, you know, if you read the statistics on how much food gets thrown out, it's pretty gross. It's terrible. It really is. It's very sad. And so hopefully this is a, not just a useful and entertaining 
uh, book for people, but is also a lesson in how to look at what you've got and uh, give you some ideas about how continuing to use it so you don't have to throw it out but and enjoy it in a completely different way. Right. Uh, Sam Zion, again, Sam the cooking guy, recipes with intentional leftovers. This is my kind of guy. <laughs> uh, you, you guys are delightful. And by the way, Peter, I know you've been in this country a long time, but your yes. accent hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you get the, the nuance there that it's not just British. It's, well, yeah. um, well it, it was in Australia for seven years before it came here. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Well, now, you, now, you've honed... now, I've been in, now I've been in Pittsburgh for 40-some years, so it's, yeah. it's, it's well, not, you certainly not recognizable like as being from... from anywhere. Yeah, no, it's great. You guys are delightful. I love talking well, to you. Thank you, Sam. You are, too. Yeah. And, and I'm thank glad that guys. we got to meet you. Thank you so much. Go eat something good and uh, stay healthy. Thank you. You, too. Okay, Bye, Sam. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next up, we've got Beatrice Ojakangas. And she is uh, prolific, as we say, as a cookbook writer. In fact, she's in the James Beard Foundation's Cookbook Hall of Fame. And she has hit right where we need it right now with her current book called The Soup and Bread Cookbook. Well, a perfectly timed release of a cookbook, Beatrice Ojakangas, which is um, a Finnish name. Um, and yes. mm-hmm. and I am in awe, total awe of you. You have produced 30 cookbooks, or is it more now? <laughs> well, I don't know. I lose track. I can't quite remember <laughs> because, uh, you know, I've done them and then I've redone them. And, yeah, I mean, it's just a little hard to count. Yeah. So. And you were in the uh, James Beard uh, Hall of Fame uh, cookbook Hall of Fame. Yeah, I am. Yes, I am. Yep. Yeah. They're having to struggle now, aren't they? <laughs> well, yeah, I haven't really kept up with it that much because, I, you know, when you're here in Duluth, Minnesota, you don't always get all of the up-to-date information, you know. Um, they, they kind of exclude you once you're out of New York City, which is okay with me because I like it here. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be really pretty, but very cold. I mean, I had a friend who said that they had to put warmers in their gloves when they walked to school. Well, yeah, in January, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I started out by saying uh, this is certainly the cookbook for for the uh, current times um, where we're all craving um, comfort. (laughs) It's called the soup. Yeah, the soup and bread cookbook. Right, and, uh, right. Yeah, and I mean, there's probably no more, nothing more basically comforting than soup and bread. That's for sure. I um, that's one reason I, I love it. My mother used to always tell me that if you don't know what else to order off a menu, order the soup and bread. 
<laughs> and you know, I've always uh, I've always kept that in my mind because, uh, gosh, uh, you know, it, it always warms you. It, it's sort of friendly when I look at it that way. Mm-hmm. So, now, you were also interest. you were also a globe trotter, so that we can expect a number of global influences in your choice of recipes, right? Oh, that's right, because, you know, uh, being a a curious foodie, uh, whenever I go to another country, I was curious to see what kind of soups and what kind of breads do they they like and and realize. I mean, I grew up with my Finnish background here, but, you know, you go to another country and and uh, what they consider basic is, uh, you know, a little, you know, it's different from what I, what I consider basic, was delicious. You know, uh-huh. I love well, it. Well, we started actually serving, um, Peter makes a killer chicken soup, a Yemeni uh, chicken soup. Um, Ooh. It, it, yeah, it's very good. It, it, it has, um, um, what is it in there, turmeric in there. So, oh, yeah. But, yeah, so but we started... Um, for dinner parties, instead of fussing around with all the um, the gourmet courses, we started making giant pots of chicken soup. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful! Well, and it was yeah. yeah the people, the reactions were incredible because people all kind of love soups when they're reminded of them, but they don't think of them. That's right. And but so yeah, I, it's, it's such a comfort food. I mean, you started out saying that we need comfort right now, and we have had we've come through a very uncomfortable time. Oh, so, I don't but, think we're through um, it yet, are we? Unfortunately. Oh, uh, not quite, I guess. But you know, um, one thing I I did in this book is I separated the soups as I could see them. By cat, by um, seasons. Seasons. And this is the autumn season, and we would always start in the fall. My husband t- was teaching at the university, and he was teaching geology students, and so uh-huh. he would invite them. He would invite them to our house mm-hmm. uh, in the uh, very dif- just as the season started. You know, as the uh, quarter or the uh, semester started to make, and we'd, we'd say we're going to stir, serve stone soup. And yeah, I, I stone wanted you to tell the story of stone soup because everybody's yeah. heard about it, but there are many versions of it. What's your version? Oh, there's many versions of it. Well, the way that we handled it is we took a stone and we scrubbed it clean and we'd say, okay, uh, we're going to make this soup, but you, we, we need to have some help. And uh, everyone brings a handful of chopped vegetables all ready to go into a pot, then we can, uh, it'll just make the soup that much better. And so I would make a broth, uh, you know, um, probably a gallon or so of it. And then I would, I'd also make bread because I love making bread. And the students come with, um, their their vegetables. I said, don't everybody bring, you know, carrots or potatoes, but think something a little interesting if you want to. And this one t- one year, a student brought a huge chunk of ginger root, and uh, and we actually added it to the soup, and it was delicious. It added a, a whole nice thing. Spice. 
Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, you know, you can you can do that. And, and, and we, of course, stone soup is very appropriate for geology students, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, well, we uh, have Peter's first cousin is, is a geologist, and he lives uh, in Tasmania now. And Peter is a geographer. So we have an affinity okay. for that kind of thing. Oh, what sure, kind of, sure. What kind of stone did you? What kind of stone did you use? Well, I think we just used one of was a local stone, a, a basalt or a, um, uh, whatever it was here. It was it was a smooth stone. It was about four or five inches in <laughs> diameter, <laughs> and we just put it in in the deep pot and put it on the stove, and and then when people came, they would um, they would throw their vegetables into the soup and then when we and it came to a boil and when we declared it was soup well then we we ate it <laughs> i i thought there was but, a different kind of story sort of like the emperor's new clothes well i don't know there's one of those too yeah there's lots of different kinds you know there was like uh the story about the uh the the uh, hobo who comes through town yeah, and right. hungry and and he says uh, he he will make soup for everybody in the village <laughs> if if they would just help out and just bring something to add to the soup. I mean, it's basically the same idea. Yeah, you right, put in right, right. whatever you've got, yeah. you know. So now anyway, it's, talking about stones, I mean, I was entranced with your um, your constructs for baking crusty bread with the the river rocks and <laughs> oh yeah 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 we use uh, i use um uh lake uh river rocks or lake rocks or whatever they are you know they're small rocks and i put them into a pan and uh, i i always, in fact right at this moment i have a my oven is is uh loaded with a pan full of rocks because when i make uh crusty bread I usually um, I, I I like to throw water on the rocks, and that makes a nice crusty loaf. Yeah, the right. steam does. So that's now you have all kinds of very practical tips throughout this book too, um, and and explanations that actually they're so honest and straightforward. I don't know why most people don't bother telling us about it. I mean, like. The confusion between definitions of stocks and broths, for example, yeah, yeah, and right. that and and what's it, the one that used to get me? Um, bone broth used to get me. Yeah, who, yeah. Who, there was a chef that made a whole bunch of money by opening up a, a, a you know a counter in his restaurant and selling right. bone broth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, people are um, ignorant of stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, um, of course, I I think chefs sometimes draw fine lines that I think sometimes are a little bit crazy. But, um, uh, you know, you have to be, make yourself, you know, sort of identify yourself, get yourself, Away from the norm, and, and you know, and, and I, I'll go along with that. It's okay. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not upset about that. But I don't like to make myself be 
somewhere on a pedestal. All mm-hmm. I want to do is make good food and, and enjoy it and enjoy serving people. Right, and yeah. uh, this is a great way to do it because you've always got a choice. No matter what season it is, you've always got a choice for what to you know, serve. Like from this book, I mean, I've got spring, uh, soups for spring, soups for summer, soups for winter, and, yeah. and um, there's always something there. But I, and I like to pair, pair uh, uh, bread with the soup. But, of course, I'm not saying you have to have that bread with that soup. If I you mean, match I, them up really nicely, I mean, it's not ho-hum. You, you have some thought in that as what goes well, what kind of bread goes well. And, and by the way, I, reading your talk about yeast, I still yes. remember those cakes that you were talking about. Now, my mother used to use those yep. press cakes. And I actually, I always yet. thought that was the the the, um, the gold standard for yeast. That everything else wasn't going to work. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it goes one way or the other. I have both here. I use both, uh-huh. and uh, they, they work a little ever, differently. But Beatrice, did you ever see the Seinfeld program? No. There Which was a, one? There was a character in it called the Soup Nazi. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I've heard if about you, that. Yeah. Okay. If you got if you got in if you got in line with the soup Nazi, but you didn't behave yourself, you didn't get any soup. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well. Okay. Yeah. Now I think it was really interesting uh, your section on uh, cooling stock safely, and also on freezing stocks and so on. Um, Peter opens a can, I mean, a, um, one of those paper containers, cartons of um, chicken broth, and, and I tell him he can't keep it for weeks or months in the refrigerator, and you oh, confirm no. me in that. We haven't died yeah. yet. I have to tell you that. Well, you, you can keep them for a short length, you know, a few days, but not forever. No, I mean, I'm talking months. <laughs> yeah. That's that's too long. But, and you know, you say that once you... You can't throw things away. I mean, if you get a simple, Well, you can if you're going to get you, poisoned by them. Well, what I'm you do it. is you freeze it and save I'm it that it. way. You're right. You're right. Well, and you freeze, you freeze them. Freeze them. Put them in a Ziploc bag and stack them up like like tiles, you know, in the freezer. And you can you can grab what you want when you need it. Yeah. So, have you ever tried? Do you have a food saver? You know, with those plastic bags. Yeah, I had I had one, but I haven't. I don't have it now. Uh, we moved a couple years ago, and uh, not everything made the move. Oh, boy, do I wish now. that we've been in this house for forty years. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's terrible. I I love that that idea. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I, but, uh, you I know, to trying to fill the freezer bags for, for a food saver with soup is an exercise in futility, I can assure you. <laughs> well, I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. at least a two-person job, <laughs> at least. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, um, you, there was something in, in this I wanted to... A recipe in here that was one of my family's recipes, 
uh, and it's your recipe comes the closest to how we had it, and it was um, the broccoli soup, where you don't put oh. any cream in it or anything, you know. Yeah, you just you just whirl it, you um, yeah. you uh, puree it. I love that yeah. because it's it's very uh, you know filling and and yet not uh, fattening. So. Right. See, I I don't like cream soups because they're really so heavy. Yeah, yeah. And then so. um, I have also um, who was that who devised this mushroom recipe? I've car I've carried it with me my whole entire life. Oh, Vincent Price from Vincent Price's oh, sure. cookbook. That has. I had um, a, did you yeah. have it? I had that book, but I donated. I had two thousand cookbooks, and I donated them to the University of Minnesota. Well, that's um, nice. Yeah. You know, when you move, was, you can't take everything with you. Yeah, I was. As long as we kept moving frequently, I was all right. You know, but with um, all this cookbook reviewing, I had so many. I was giving them all to. Um, charity uh, for their uh, silent auctions you know and um yeah yeah, and now nobody has anything like that there's no fundraisers or anything so no yeah not this year yeah not this year but talking about the mushroom soup the secret ingredient to vincent price's mushroom soup was I think it was two tablespoons of sweet vermouth. <laughs> that always makes it better. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you know how long it takes to use up a bottle of sweet vermouth? <laughs> well, you can keep well, that. You, you can keep, keep that. You can keep that outside of the refrigerator. Oh yeah, yeah that was a great. Yeah. No, 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 no. I just, I'm just saying that it takes a lot to use up a whole big fifth or whatever it is that comes in of sweet vermouth. How many things do you use yeah, sweet right. vermouth in? Well, you don't have to, don't get, don't get a bottle that big. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what haven't you um, explored in your career of, of um, cookbooks? Oh, boy, I think I've explored just about everything that could be explored. <laughs> um, I can't, I can't think of anything that I have, haven't, you know, tried to do. Um, I've had all, all sorts of machinery, and I've had every, all sorts of gadgets and things that are used in, in uh, different countries. Um, I've picked up um, special rolling pins for different kinds of fettuccine and stuff like that. And, well, they didn't make the move. And sometimes <laughs> I miss that stuff. Yeah, well, but, uh, we we have a closet where all that stuff gets stored, and I, I just dread having to get it out. Yeah, I don't have a closet that big anymore. Right, so. well, see, that's it, yeah. Well, I, anyhow, I, I, listeners, again, this is Beatrice Ojakangas, and mm-hmm. it's, oh, I'm pretty good at Ojakangas, and um, it's called The Soup and Bread Cookbook. And you'll find great tips for both soup and bread making. And also, um, you'll find how you could elevate both elements with the other by pairings, which I think is a real big success story for this book, Beatrice. Well, thank you. I 
that's exactly what I tried to do. And um, hopefully give people ideas and, and uh, su- support their their uh, interest in cooking and, and even younger people, you know, not not just uh, – it should go well for almost any age group. So you know, Everybody's cooking nowadays. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. We are. We're, what, what do we call it? Um, uh, quarantine butt? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a quarantine hairdo right now. I haven't had a haircut since all this started, and I'm beginning to feel like I need it badly. Well, I actually um, I, I decided after oh, a couple of months that I would just let it go white, and I'm so happy I did because it's beautiful. I love it. My well, new white hair too. <laughs> well, I, like, I have been white for a while. Yeah, so white my friends too, but anyhow. Well, all right, listeners, again, get this cookbook. And uh, since you're cooking anyhow, you might as well add the baking part of it, the soup and bread cookbook. And uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Beatrice. Well, thank you for calling me and for allowing me to, to talk about it because it's always fun. It's always an interesting thing. There's always uh, another story. There is. <laughs> thank you very much. Finally, uh, rounding out today's programs, uh, if you thought that there really was dude food, you have to read this book. It's by um, Emily Contois, uh, which is, I'm assuming, French-Canadian, and it's called Diners, Dudes, and Diets. Besides the alliteration, it's a very interesting uh, exploration of gender in food. Emily Contois, beautiful name, so romantic sounding. Um, You are a teacher, you are an academic, and this book is like (laughs) a a doctoral dissertation. I I, I meant to count how many pages of footnotes you have, but (laughs) I didn't, and that and your bibliography, but you put a lot of work into this book titled Diners, Dudes, and Diets. Um, how long did it take you to research this? Yes, it's been more than 10 years. Um, it did come from my doctoral dissertation, uh, but at the same time, I did try hard to write it for a public audience to make the ideas sophisticated but accessible. So I look forward to hearing what you both thought about that. Tell me again what about what? She wanted to know what, uh, what, we, what we thought about her approach to the subject. Oh, 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 I didn't even think that there was an issue with that. I mean, <laughs> you did it. I mean, I have to admit that uh, without all the, the work that you put into it, that I began to get an, an inclination about how the whole um, gender thing is shifting. When we had... Um, we were at the pool, and poolside, everybody got together, and it used to be that the women would exchange recipes, in, probably in the last 10 years, it's the guys who exchange recipes <laughs> and cooking tips. Well, that's because our wives got lazy and didn't cook anymore. <laughs> and then the other thing is, I, I did notice all the ads for like, um, what's it, not just... Um, 
Weight Watchers, but that other one that sends you the food. I mean, they're targeting men. Nutrisystem, right? Nutrisystem, yeah. So, I mean, there there's definitely a a um, a component, a gender component that's involved in in play with the whole foodscape, as far as I can tell. Now, what what did you think about like? I, I want to ask you, but it's, it's probably early. Um, Guy Fieri was another one that stood out in my mind. Now, he's a dude, right? Yes, he was heralded as a dude chef from very early on in his media sort of success, yes. So um, you, I guess my, my question is your answer. You had an issue, and you researched it. And your answer really confirms that there is a gender identity to the foodscape or to cooking and food. Well, I think what's interesting is that food itself doesn't naturally or inherently have a gender, but it comes to be understood in gendered terms uh, through the way that our society and culture repeats particular definitions about what it means to be a man, to be a woman, um, to be masculine, to be feminine, or something in between or beyond those categories. And so what I'm looking at is how that gender binary has become so firmly entrenched. And that as you were discussing, we see these shifts of more men cooking, of more men interested in following Pinterest boards and Instagram posts when it comes to things about food. But as I looked at our 21st century foodscape, you see some quite traditional, conventional, even regressive representations of food and identity when it comes to gender. Some that would be recognizable as what you would have seen in the 1950s, or as others would argue, even in the Victorian era in the 19th century. So to show how far we have come, um, but how far we still need to go when it comes to representing our identity through food. And I think food is one of these profound spaces for communicating who we are and who we can be. And that's part of why something that sounds silly, right, the idea of a dude, um, a masculine identity that is about slacking, right, about celebrating average or even below average guys, that when we really uh, analyze how that dude identity came to be constructed, how it was a specific moment um, in the early 2000s that then expands after the recession. There's a specific historical context um, in which he sort of rises and that the food, media, and marketing industries attempt to use him to be able to sell food and food figures to men in new and different ways. Now, the him you're referring to here is just to pardon you use you use you use him here ah so the dude yeah, so the dude is a gendered discourse, right? So academics, right, wouldn't give that a gendered pronoun. But that was a, a writability choice that I chose in the book, right, to refer to the dude as he, as him, um, to understand how he was deployed by these industries and how he resonated in some ways with um, male audiences. But it's not a straight shot. I mean, it, the, I found it very difficult to uh, to, to, to really be up to the gender um, 
uh, what do you call it, um, gender flux, gender flu. The whole gender fluid situation is very difficult and, and to understand. If I mean, it changes so quickly. Well, now, didn't the Marlboro well, Man have something to do with it? <laughs> the Marlboro Man, right, is a way to market cigarettes, right, very differently aligned with these ideas of masculine ruggedness. Right. Um, and so it's another masculine type that certainly worked at a particular moment. I think the idea of gender fluidity and of viewing gender as a far more flexible idea, I write about that a bit in the conclusion, thinking about things like hard seltzer um, and how White Claw as a particular brand has been very successful yeah, this, this white gender. claw. I mean, this white claw demands attention. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a hard seltzer. It has really changed the alcohol category. I think even wine producers are getting a bit nervous, looking at how successful this category has been. And then white claw, among multiple options, has been very successful. In part because they didn't go after just women. They went with this post-gender approach that I analyze as a little bit dudish. That they sort of extended the casual hang um, to a broad audience. So you have everyone from suburban moms to college-age frat boys really loving this drink. Not just buying it, but it's sort of becoming a cultural phenomenon. Um, the sort of summer of White Claw um, was this sort of big moment in 2019. And then 2020, it still kind of happened, even as this year spiraled in ways no one had expected. Uh, sweet, sweetheart, is, is, that, is this White Claw, is that like that kombucha that I like so much? No, it's no, not. it's different. It, it, yeah, and the kombucha is a fermented beverage. Um, but but it's but it's hard. But it's hard. So it, it's hard soda. Yeah, but I've never had white claw. Emily, have you had white claw? I have. I've tasted everything that I write about in the book. Uh, uh, so white claw. So you know all the sparkling waters that became so successful, particularly as you know diet sodas and sodas were. I'm struggling a little bit. Um, a lot of those brands have developed or bought um, sparkling water brands. So this is a hard sparkling water. This is um, a uh, sparkling water that has alcohol content. Yes. No, well, so, so, of course, kombucha, no, no. some kombucha does not have alcohol, but we've yeah. just gotten a shipment from, I can't remember what it's called now, but they they have hard cider. I mean, hard um, um, seltzer. A kombucha. What am I losing? A white cloth. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat that alcoholic one. too, right? The first one you had did not have alcohol in it. Oh, okay, all right. And now, the second one, the one that you've been drinking, and I mean, I I asked you. I mean, it's not something I would drink in the morning if it has alcohol. In it, you know? you're, you're, but, you're you're saying the 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 you you're talking about is me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure whether it was me or Emily you were talking about. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. No. Um, well, you know, I mean, the, the definition, I mean, this whole thing is uh, diversity itself is becoming such an issue. And like the wine industry, I mean, uh, women are fighting for a place in the wine industry. And it also uh, race is entering into this, uh, people of color are fighting for a place in the wine industry. But the wine industry, um, a long time ago, uh, separated out that white wine was for women and red wine was for men. Do you remember that, Emily? 
seeing that and then also rosé i think they've had a harder time in some ways being able to market that to men a, a pink wine so it does it goes back again to these conventional ideas of what's masculine what's feminine and so what i'm looking at in the book is actually kind of like that right if you were going to try and market rosé to men if it was perceived to be feminine what would marketers do and so that's what I'm looking at in this book of how they combat what marketing scholar Jill Avery called more, uh, gender contamination. The idea okay. that if a brand is understood to be feminine, you're going to have to overcome that to be able to market it to men. So well, when I did we at, get this? Um, when did we have this real men don't eat teach stuff? That that's a while ago, that was, isn't it? Yes, that's 1982. Um, so I mentioned that briefly in the book, thinking about these past crises of gender that we've been through, right? Some people would argue that masculinity is always in crisis, right? It's always um, sort of figuring <laughs> itself out, right? That gender itself is always unstable when we think about it in social cultural context. So yes, the idea of, you know, the idea that there is a quote unquote real man, right? Is something that I'm unpacking in the book and to think right. about how what we eat, what we drink and how we care for our bodies, right? The dieting chapter um, makes us think uh, beyond just the food itself or how it's represented in our consumer culture. Um, but these ideas about bodies, about health, that it's really important how gender comes to be mapped onto those ideas as well. Now, did, did you ever hear, hear the story about <coughs> when George Bush and, and his vice president were out to lunch and they were trying to decide what to, what to have for lunch? And President Bush said, I think I'd like a quickie. <laughs> I have heard that mistake, yes. Mistake. By, 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 by which, listeners, um. not, not, not what you think. Quiche, think quiche. No, but, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, it was probably real men don't eat quiche anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And I do um, write a little bit about sort of George W. Bush, right, of being sort of our beer test president. Right. Uh, that's that what, that's what I was talking right, about. Based on, yes, this, you know, accessibility, this sort of populist sense of him being someone that you would want to have a beer with. Um, and in thinking about his presidency, um, which some have characterized as sort of cowboy diplomacy. Um, that yeah. masculinity was, you know, at play for sure, right, harkening back to sort of Reaganism and ideas as well. Um, and so thinking about masculinity, race, class, um, across political spaces, economic spaces. Um, and so when I'm thinking about the dude, I'm thinking about that context specifically of the Great Recession, how that dramatically changed um, gender norms, economic patterns. And then interestingly, that's when we see a lot of changes in the foodscape as well, as more men who are underemployed or unemployed or at home, they have to negotiate in a different way their relationship to the domestic space, uh, which for more than 100 years, right, has been understood as masculine and then, or as uh, feminine, rather, right, the domestic sphere. Um, so there's this negotiation that we see going going on in things like advertisements, Pinterest, Instagram posts, all those sorts of texts. Well, you know, when you, um, you end your, your research, you end telling us about your research with, uh, I'd say, um, possibilities that futures could see continuing change. It's like a moving target. Is that how you feel? 
Yes, I wanted the book to end on a hopeful note because that is how I feel. Um, I think the advertising industry in particular is an interesting space that does care about culture. Um, that we're seeing more and more conversations about corporate social responsibility um, of what we expect from brands, from companies, um, to stand for something. And that in the foodscape, these ideas about identity, including gender, are on the table. And so the kinds of campaigns that I critique in the book um, are all ones that can be reconfigured, right? That there is great potential in how we think about how our consumer culture constructs our ideas about who we can be, including our gender, and that that can be resignified, right? To use the language of semiotics, right? That it can be changed, it can be opened up, that all those possibilities remain. Um, and so the book does critique all of those um, mistakes that I see with the dude, but I remain hopeful of where this entire industry can go. Um, as you were talking about with the wine industry, right, all throughout food media, we are finally having um, conversations about diversity and inclusion and truly making an equitable food media scape. And so I very genuinely hope this book is a part of that process. Well, there's, there's so much work to be done. And, you know, I just read a, a depressing article about how this um, – the court of master sommeliers uh, was rife with yes. um, with rape and and uh, sexual assault and you know so that women kind of dropped out and didn't pursue it. No, absolutely. As we look at professional kitchens and then that recent article, yes on this professional word of sommeliers and the training process um, of how, that's why the title isn't just gender, right? It's gender and power. As we look at how that's organized, how that's structured, how it works, so that we can take it apart and make sure that it's reconfigured so that it works for everyone. Um, but yes, there is lots of work to do. Oh, there's so much work. I mean, <laughs> I mean you just watched the whole thing happen with the James Beard foundation falling apart mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, every time i turn around there's a new issue um and so we've been uh, we've been actually spending a lot of time on the issues uh, as opposed to the um the the, the persona and the, the celebrities and that kind of thing um because that seems to be at the forefront of wherever we're going to go if we ever get opened up <laughs> they, they just shut down the restaurants in england again I don't know that they're going to survive. I mean, I don't know. Um, so, Emily, uh, do you, you base at your very basic understanding, all this talk about how important food is to the discussion of culture and of everything, it's really still central in your mind. Absolutely. I think food studies as a field has put that idea that you can use food as a lens to be able to explore any number of topics from economics to politics to gender relations to policy change. Um, and I think for me, because this question of gender contamination um, was one of these things I was pushing back against in the book, that food remains important because it's so intimate so visceral um, in its materiality because we eat food compared to other sort of consumer objects or, you know, aspects of our media lives. We eat food. It comes into our bodies um, and it becomes a part of us. 
So the stakes are high um, in how we think about the um, flows of justice and equity throughout our entire food system and how it connects all of us together. Um, but I do, I find great, great hope and great meaning and great opportunity for change in food. Now, your students, I always found out when I was teaching that you learn a lot from your students and the questions they ask. What have you been hearing from your students about their questions having to do with this? Yes, I think what's fun for me is that I don't teach food study students. So I'm often teaching students for whom these are new ideas. Um, to teach them about um, the fact that food is so much more than just food. They find that so eye-opening. Or they leave the class that, you know, I had no idea that food has so much to do with our structures and institutions of society as we think about power, justice, and equity. Um, They've loved doing, you know, taste training um, to sort of learn how to really taste with all of your senses, um, to think critically about the persona, right, of the great chef. Who gets to count as that? Um, and I think I also do an assignment where my students um, have a food Instagram account for a semester. How does it feel to take photos of your food, whether it's something when you're shopping or you're eating out or to be, you know, so full of pride for something that you've made at home, that they think really critically about what they share on social media, what does it mean to share your food life. And for this Gen Z generation, they don't really take photos of food. Like that goes in your stories that doesn't go in the grid. Um, So I've learned a lot from them, particularly about how they use social media um, and how food for them is a big part of their lives, but they sort of leave it out of their social media lives, which I found really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a lot has changed, though, I mean, in in terms of the focus of of students in the social media stage uh, around food. I mean, so much of social media is poised around food, huh? Yes, they consume lots of food media, right? They love watching cooking shows on YouTube, um, and they're definitely looking at food. But I was interested in how few of them are really producing food media on their own, where they're taking photos or sharing recipes. Um, But that was a lot more niche than I expected um, compared to my own generation, right? I'd be considered like an old millennial. Um, But it was much more common among my generation to be sort of producing food media at the same time that you were consuming it. I see. Um, So how long have you been teaching? This is my third year here at the University of Tulsa, um, and then I was able to teach while I was getting my Ph.D. at Brown University, and then I also taught Introduction to Nutrition um, as a graduate student instructor when I was at UC Berkeley. Um, so that was a class of, you know, 800 students, um, and so having them in their sections. So I've taught from both sides, right, of teaching from a humanities, social science perspective, and then also from um, that scientific perspective. Um, I'm a little bit unique in that my graduate training is in public health nutrition, food studies, and in American studies. Um, so wow. I'm deeply interdisciplinary <laughs> in my – yeah, that's the reason that bibliography is so long, right? I'm covering a lot of fields um, to show the, the depth of the literature that I'm drawing from. Um, it's a brief book, right? It's about 130 pages, yeah, but it's a 40-page bibliography. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it certainly is, has a control over – our, our social construct at, at this moment, um, you know, it just, it just it amazes me. Of course, I've done this for a long time, so I 
I guess I guess I must have taken more for granted, and you know, but and, and now it's all coming unraveled. I mean, it's like all the subcurrents are showing themselves. I think. I think we can still be hopeful, though, of where it's going to take us as we think about this intersection of food and media and identity um, and these ideas about health, too, um, that there's sort of an interesting right. strain to it as well. And, and not not to miss out on politics, we, we interviewed um, Marion Nessel. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I've, I've known Marion for years and, and been to a lot of her lectures and read a lot of her stuff. And, uh, but, you know, so I said to her, what do you see coming down the pike? What is your, what, what is your advice right now? <laughs> she said, I can tell you in one word. Can you guess what that word is? I'm pretty sure it was vote. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we've come to that. Well, I, I really enjoyed reading this, and it was, you know, I, I'm part of the, the I, I, I was happy that I had actually sensed uh, uh, this subcurrent in this with this dude stuff, um, and, and you've put it in logical form for me. So I thank you for that, Emily Contois, which I, just, I love the name. Uh, listeners, Again, it's Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture. And it's it's a grand read. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I know you have a class to go teach now. No, I think they're mine. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, All you (laughs) cook-a-doos. We're getting... Cabin fever on uh, our end. <laughs> no, about you guys. Another day, another dollar. As yeah, exactly. Anyhow, until next week, same time, same place. We same hope place. We'll, 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 what do we, we say? Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>